Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Spiritual Exercises Podcast. My name is Rachel Amaday. Sorry, I had to get a quick sip of my coffee before I get started here. I am so glad you're here. I am so excited. I'm so excited to share this podcast with you today. This is one of the, you know, every once in a while, um, I get that new information, that new revelation that really excites me about scripture, about what God has done, what he's doing, what he's going to do, and something that ties so many Bible verses together, so much scripture together. I get really excited by this stuff, you guys, and I am not at all surprised that I have had this experience with this year's Sukkot or Feast of Tabernacles celebration I just want to communicate to you what an incredible time of year this is, how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is. And I hope you're getting to enjoy the outdoors. I hope you are in a time of Thanksgiving where you were able to give gratitude to the Lord. You can look back at the past year and be grateful for what he's done in your life. I hope you're just having an incredible time right now. We are in the middle of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Most people right now, if you're Jew or Messianic, you're celebrating it right now. It's really September 29th through October 6th. And so we're in the midst of it. This is a time where the first day and the last day, they're, they're Sabbath days, they're days of rest. And in between, Jews and Messianics all over the world create temporary structures, temporary places where they eat, where they hang out. Um, a lot of people are even living, you know, in tents or in these separate temporary structures right now called sukkahs. And we get that sukkah um, and sukkot from different stories in the Bible. And one of the most important locations you can go to to find all of God's commanded holidays is Leviticus 23. This will be just a quick review at the top of this. For those of you who've been listening to my podcast, you already know all of this, but maybe you want to share this with somebody who is not aware that God commands feast days and festival days. They, they're called Moedim in the Hebrew, in, the, in your scripture, the appointed times. These are commanded in Leviticus 23, in different sections of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as well. And the, these holidays show up throughout the entire Bible. They are both um, things that Yeshua showed us, what they meant, part of what they meant in his first coming. And then he will reveal even more and reveal deep meaning and truth about these in all that he does in his second coming. Most Jews and Messianic believers uh, call these either the spring or the fall Moedim, appointed times. Moedim means appointed times of God. And, um, but a lot of people also recognize that they're really kind of winter and summer festivities. And why do we say that? Well, um, we'll talk about Sukkot right now, but Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, is the last 
of the feast days listed. It's the seventh one when you go to Leviticus 23. And when you go to scripture and look at prophecy and how the appointed times of God lay out prophetically, the Feast of Tabernacles is the final holiday. It's the final prophetic moment in scripture, the very end of Revelation. We're going to talk about all of this today. Um, and so uh, you're going to see this this layout, this design. But the the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot or the Feast of Booths, it's called many different things in Scripture. Um, this happens at the end of the harvest. And it's actually in numbers. It's delineated as, listen, after you've brought in all of your harvest, then you're going to have this basically Thanksgiving. But it also has a lot of symbolism that's about a wedding. And we'll get into that. Um, but it's after the harvest. And so it's right as winter is coming on, actually. So it's not at the beginning of fall. It's the end, kind of, of your fall holiday, um, where it lands in our calendar right now, um, you know, it just depends, right? It depends on um, on the year. This is not a holiday, you know, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. I, I've gone through all of these. You can go back to my previous podcast to find them. Uh, they, they lay out differently each year on different dates each year because um, the holidays of God, the Moedim, the appointed times of God, actually have to do with the moon, and moon cycles. And also, according to scripture, they have to do with when the harvest is ripe. Now, I don't know that we do this properly anymore. I don't know that we actually time these things out according to like going and looking at the grain, going and looking at where, you know, the harvest is at. However, I do believe in unity in the body and unity before the Lord. And so I kind of follow the traditional dates that most Jews and Messianics do. I am not into going in and arguing about this ad nauseum with people. We do our best, right? Let's keep things simple. But it's not like these holidays are not like your Christmas or your, you know, Thanksgiving where they're the same day every year. That just is not how these align. So this year, the Feast of Tabernacles aligned to be September 29th in the evening to uh, through October 6th. And so we're in the middle of it. This is one of the most beautiful and exciting uh, holidays. It's something that when I think about it every day, I almost start to cry because I'm so excited for when Yeshua fills this holiday full of meaning when he returns and when we get to have the wedding feast of the Lord, when someday we get to see God face to face um, because we're given a new covering. Um, I just, I, this whole holiday has so much meaning. And I want you, even if you're like a mainstream Christian or you're not a believer at all, what this is going to reveal to you as we talk about this holiday is the consistency of scripture, how the same things that you see in Genesis, you're going to see in Revelation. You see it from beginning to end. God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And his word is miraculous. It is incredible that so many authors over thousands of years of time wrote the same story and wrote with the same consistency. There is no other book on the planet like this. The Bible is unique in its depth, its understanding, its number of authors, and its consistency. It's a complete, it is not human. 
And so I can prove that to you. If you start listening to these podcasts, you're going to see that. But today, I think you're really going to see it as we look. And not to mention, we have historical evidence we're going to get into today that shows that God has given so many signs and symbols to the Jewish people for them to understand who the Messiah is. It is it is so extraordinary. So again, if you're a Christian and you your your normal holidays that you celebrate are Christmas and Easter, stick with me. Let me give you a chance to show you how beautiful the Feast of Tabernacles is and why it's important to recognize. Now, one thing I want to note before we get into this, the pilgrims who came over from Europe, the first Thanksgiving in this country was very likely a Feast of Tabernacles celebration. People don't know this, but a lot of those pilgrims were actually living in in Europe with Jews. And so they came over and they already had a fall festival of Thanksgiving. And so the very first Thanksgiving here, it is historically documented. There are historians who talk about this likely was a feast of tabernacles. You guys, this was a biblical holiday. They weren't instituting something new. They were doing something they had already understood and been taught to do, which is very cool that that seed was planted here in the United States at its very inception. Um, I really do think God wanted to do something special in this nation and to help this nation to understand his ways and his goodness. And we have many people who came over into this country um, who came for the right reasons, who came for religious freedom, many who didn't, right? But we do have seeds planted here of righteous, righteous people. And um, that's nice that we can look back historically and see that. Okay. Let's get into this. So I want to talk about the sukkah again. So uh, you build a temporary dwelling. And this... Um, when you go back and you look at the story of Exodus, when the nation of Israel was coming out of Egypt, they had to live in temporary dwelling places for 40 years, right? And what God told them to build, the tabernacle, there were actually two tents, right? There was the tabernacle that had the mercy seat and, um, you know, had, had its particular function. And then there was a tent of meeting outside of that, that Moses could go and meet with God without all of kind of the pomp and circumstance. He could just go to the, the, the entrance of the tent and God's presence would come down and meet with him. Okay. Cut the come as you are location, right? So there were these places, but these places that God told them to build, God said, I want you to do this this way so that I can dwell with you. I can dwell among you. Okay. I can tabernacle with you. And this is actually where we understand the term for the Lord, the term for Yeshua, that is Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. Well, the Bible talks about God tabernacling with us from beginning to end. God's main intention, right? His whole being. I talk about this in the book that I wrote. He's about family. He wants to be united to his family. You are his family. If you love him, if you have accepted Yeshua as your Lord and Savior, and you adore him in his ways and you, you love him, this, you are family. And God is desperate to get back to that place 
where he was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve united in one, able to walk next to them, right? The garden had this tabernacle set up, this, this holy setup, and, and they could be in the Holy of Holies with God free and clear without the fear of being burned up by the power of God. They didn't ha- need the covering that we need. They had their own covering. They had their own light. I think that the final version of our bodies we receive are going to be like the bodies Adam and Eve had in the garden. God is about restoring things, right? And so we are going, there's plenty of science that shows that we already glow. We already have this bioluminescence, um, it's just not very strong. It's just hard to see. But we, our cells, our bodies have this capability. And so I believe that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had their own fire and their own light. And that was their, they were, their likeness to God, who was described as a fire and a light, was completely similar. They were fire and light, just like God is. And so they didn't need a covering to be in his presence. They could be united to him and walk with him. When sin came, when the fall came, when death came, that bioluminate, that light, that covering that they had was lost and separation, which is death, right? Separation from the light and life of God is death. That separation took place. God's intention is to restore that, to give us back the life and the light so that we can be one with him. But until the fullness of his word and his story comes to pass, we can't get those new bodies now. We need another way. We need a covering. Here comes the sukkah, right? The temporary structure that they built in Exodus where God's presence, God could dwell among his people. Now we know that the new covenant says that the God says there, there was going to come a time when his dwelling place would be in man. And we're told this, we're told that our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. We are now the temporary dwelling place, the tabernacle for God's spirit. And we're temporary because our bodies die, right? This body is a temporary sukkah. So when you build that sukkah, when you eat outside and it becomes that temporary covering for you. It's a picture of who you are. You are a sukkah. You are the dwelling place of God. Okay. And so this temporary dwelling is a big part of this holiday, this eight day holiday, because of all that it represents. It represents the story. And then it's going to, it represents what is coming. The sukkah we built this year looks an awful lot like a Jewish wedding chupa. Okay. And it's decorated with, you know, flowers and some leaves and um, the covering looks like something you would get married under. And I believe the sukkah also represents like the Jewish chuppah, which a Jewish couple gets married under this structure, is a covering, right? That God is the covering. Well, we're going to learn here how the Sukkot celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, is a wedding celebration, right? The The groom comes back for his bride, and there is a great wedding feast. And there's a parable about this that we're told in the New Testament, that there's a great party. There's a great celebration that people get invited to. There's a feast, right? The wedding feast. And um, you want to be in that feast. I want to be in that feast. I want to be the bride, actually. I want to be there, and I want to be united to the groom. I want to be united to my Lord and Savior. Okay, um, the this picture of Christ too in this. So it's the seventh holiday. 
Now, I go through this in my book. I've gone through this in past podcasts. I encourage you to go find the number seven, the meaning in the menorah. But something really important is this is the seventh holiday. And if you know the Ten Commands of God, the Ten Commandments, um, the seventh one is thou shall not commit adultery. Okay, so we have a wedding a wedding feast in the seventh holiday of God. And the, in the 10 commandments, God says, do not cheat on me, right? We know that God married himself to the people in, in, in the nation of Israel in the old Testament. And they went and they worshiped other gods so badly to the point that in Jeremiah, he talks about, he gave them a certificate of divorce. He had to divorce his people broke his heart, but he said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring the, the groom back. We're going to have a death so that according to law, we can be remarried. And so Christ dies so that he can become a new man and the first fruits of a new crop, a new bride, right? And, and by new, I don't mean that the, that, you know, uh, the story of Israel has changed. I'm not a dispensationalist at all. In fact, I think that stuff is nonsense and I'm not a replacement theologist. No, thank you. No. God talks about two houses. He's bringing back together the house of Judah and the house of Israel. We see this picture in the story of the prodigal son, the house of Judah who stayed and is jealous of the younger son, right? And then the house of Israel that strayed and is cast out into the nations and is lost, but then comes crawling back. And there's this wonderful celebration when the father receives back the prodigal son and his whole house is brought back together. That is the prophetic understanding of what God is doing. He's bringing his whole family back together, right? But the nation of Israel um, and eventually Judah, they went out and they worshiped other gods. The seventh command, do not commit adultery. When you you are one with God, you are his, you are his bride, right? This is a This is about a wedding, Okay, the number seven also always harkens back to the wholeness of creation, the fullness of creation. God rested on the seventh day. And so, of course, the seventh holiday is going to be really long. It's going to be, you know, over a week long, eight day, eight days in its fullness. Um, it's going to represent, it's the last holiday, it's the seventh day, it's that rest that we get to enter into the marriage feast of the Lord, this new covenant. 7,000 years is what the Bible lays out as mankind's history and mankind's timeline, um, God's timeline for mankind as it is um, from Genesis to Revelation. So we understand Yeshua came in the fourth millennium. We're going to talk about that too. And he's going to return for, for the seventh millennium. He's going to return for a thousand year reign. The Bible talks about him reigning on the earth a thousand years. So we have each day of the creation week representing, what does the Bible say? A day of the Lord, you know, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Okay. The Bible tells us that to all give us this little clue that God has a prophetic timeline. And after the thousand year reign of Christ, we know that God remakes all things things new. And then we enter into the eighth day and we don't really know all that the eighth day entails, but we know there's no more tears. There's no more suffering. There's no more mourning. We will be fully and completely united with God and in our new bodies, our new selves. And so the eighth day is kind of this mysterious, um, kind of mysterious time. But uh, Sukkot clues us into that, that the seventh, you know, leads into 
the ultimate, right? The ultimate heaven, the ultimate time of unity with God. And we're going to talk about um, some traditions that are delineated in the Talmud that we understand happened during Sukkot in Jerusalem during the Second Temple period, which was about 597 BC to 70 AD. Um, in that temple area, they would have in the court of women these four huge golden candlesticks during Sukkot. And these giant four were lit on the Temple Mount. Each candlestick um, stood 50 cubits high, which they think is about 75 feet tall. These were giant. They were filled with oil. Okay. They had a large golden bowl on top. Each bowl held about seven and a half gallons of pure olive oil. Four young priests would ascend the ladder that rested against, against each of these giant candlesticks and pour the oil into the bowls. When the wicks, and these wicks are important. We're going to talk about this. The wicks were made from worn out priestly garments and they were lit. Um, this is according to a website I found. The light was so bright that every courtyard in Jerusalem was illuminated with light. The atmosphere was incredibly festive. Great rejoicing took place. Pious men would dance all night holding torches and singing praises. Like, you know, there's this record of the Psalms of Ascent um, being sung, the Psalms, uh, you know, and, and, and other Psalms. And Levites would play harps, lyres, and other musical instruments. Jerusalem glistened like a diamond. This is according to one um, source that I found. So the Talmud talks about this. These four giant candles lit with wicks made from priestly garments. So we're going to quick talk about the light here. First of all, quoting from a website called The Word of Light. This will give you an idea of the prophetic importance of the candles. It says this, it is too small that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's Isaiah 49 verse 6, by the way. Thus, the rabbis also consistently saw Messiah as the true light of God. Okay, and there are multiple rabbinical quotes that have to do with that. At Sukkot, we know that Yeshua went up to the temple. In John 7, 3, 37 through 39 and 8, we see this, that John went to the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles, for this holiday, where the Sukkot pilgrims from around the world had been celebrating joyously for seven days. We see this in John. Okay, they were celebrating this, and on the eighth day of this celebration, now on the eighth day, traditionally, this celebration, there is a solemn assembly, and the light is turned out. Okay. Yeshua was there on the eighth day. The candles are extinguished. The temple is dim. It was then that Messiah said, John 8, 12, he stood up and he, he shouted out, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You guys, how this is, okay, this is huge. So they, during this time, Yeshua goes up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. The four candles have been lit for these days. And on the eighth day, the candles are, are, are put out. And Yeshua declares, I, I am these candles. I am the light of life you have been looking for. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. By the great extinguished candles at the treasury in the court of the women, he declared, that he was the light. 
So I want to look even deeper into this. Look at this. These four candle wicks that were made of the priestly garments. Let's look at this. There was a belief, um, a rabbinical belief that four candles, the four candlesticks represent the four corners of the world. The Bible talks about the four corners of things, right? The four directions, the four winds, the four corners of the earth. The four candlesticks were, were representative that all of the world would one day be illuminated with the light of God the high priest. Hey, you know that in Revelation, we are told that in the very end, at the end of the seventh day, God becomes the light. We no longer need sun or moon. He is the light. Boy, how the rabbis know this? What did they what did they see prophetically in the Old Testament, right? Well, it's there. It's right there. And these four candlesticks represented that light. Now, Let's go to the Bible. Um, a, a, mo- a few moments before Yeshua's death in John 19, 23, it says this. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That so end quote. Now that seamless garment is representative of a high priest garment. So we we're we're getting this reference here. Hey. Yeshua is a high priest and he was wearing a priestly garment. The clothing was divided into these four other pieces, the priestly garments divided into four. Guys, the light of the world, the groom at the wedding ceremony, the four candlesticks, the reason for this celebration. His garments were separated into four. He's the light. He's the wicks of the candles that will, he will illuminate the entire world. Now, I've also taught in the past about the number four being related to the Messiah. Whenever we see the number four, we see Messiah. We have four gospel testimonies to his work. He came in the fourth millennia. He's the center of the fourth candlestick in the menorah because he is the vine and we are the branches. And if you look at a menorah, that center fourth candlestick is the vine and Everything else branches out of it, right? He's the Sabbath rest that we enter into. And the fourth command in the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath, right? He's also related to the first and seventh commands that you're supposed to love God first and don't commit adultery against him. If you love him, you will stay faithful. Command number one and command number seven, he is your groom. So we have these uh, and the fourth Holiday, the fourth Moedim, the fourth feast day of the Lord, is the Feast of Weeks. This is the day in the Old Testament that Moses received the laws on Mount Sinai. And it's the day in the New Testament we call Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes upon people, there's this unification that takes place. There is this route to being reunified. The laws of God allowed a route for the nation of Israel to be able to travel with God in their midst. The Holy Spirit allows us this route now so that God's laws can be written on our hearts. We can be unified to him. The whole point of everything God is doing is about reunification. So we have the Feast of Weeks, which is the fourth holiday. That middle part is the point of everything, unity. And then we get to have a wedding feast, the seventh right? Okay. I I do a long teaching on that earlier. You can go find that, but this is, these are really interconnected. There's meaning here. Okay. 
So the number four always relates to the Lord. So his four, if there were four, four garments divided before his death. Okay. Um, during Sukkot, there was also something called a libation ceremony or a water ceremony. Now listen to this. In the Jerusalem Talmud, this is stated. Herein lies the secret of the festival of the water libation. The great joy was in receiving of prophetic inspiration, end quote. So this water libation ceremony had deep prophecy uh, written into it, deep understanding in it. And as they did the ceremony, they were experiencing a prophetic moment and they knew that. That's why that quote in the Jerusalem Talmud is there. The Jews knew this libation ceremony was about the Messiah. Now this ceremony, there was this... Um, basically this place at the bottom of two uh, channels that went up. In one channel, they would take water from the Pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam was considered a healing place. These are healing waters, right? These are waters of life, life-giving waters. They would get the water from the Pool of Siloam. And in, at the top of one channel, the water would be poured. Then there was another, a, a bowl that had a channel going down to this central location. And that was for the blood of the sacrifice. Okay. Whatever sacrifice was uh, taking place um, during Sukkot, that the blood would be put there. Okay. Now you would put the blood in that bowl and the water up at the top of the other channel. And when you would pour them in together, uh, they, the timing was just perfect that the blood and the water would meet at the same time at the bottom. I want to talk to you about, uh, and I'm sure many of you are recalling this right now, that when Christ died and his side was pierced, what came out at the same time? Blood and water. What did Yeshua say? I am the living water. He says this on the eighth day of Sukkot as well. His quote is, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. The libation ceremony. He literally said, I am the light. I am the candles that you light every year for this feast. And I am the water and the blood of the libation ceremony that you are doing. I am the living water. John 7, 37 to 30, 38. On that eighth day, he declared who he was as these ceremonies were taking place. Can you imagine how crazy this moment must have been for the people who were present because they've been doing they had been doing this holiday for thousands of years and now they're in the temple and all of this symbolism has just taken place and then Yeshua stands up and he says I am all of what you have been celebrating when the Bible says, when Yeshua says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The word fulfill is plerau in Greek. It means I came to fill it full of meaning. Can you imagine in that moment, all of those ceremonies were filled full with meaning. They were staring at the candles. They were staring at the water and the blood. They were staring at the sacrifice and the life. They were staring at their sukkah, their covering that would allow them to be in the presence of God without being destroyed. They were looking at the entirety of what we observe in the Feast of Tabernacles celebration. It is all Jesus. Guys, isn't this good? Isn't this amazing? And God watched them doing these things and he said, just wait until I show them what all of this is about. 
All right, now we have some Sukkot traditions that come from different sections of the Bible in Nehemiah 8, 14 through 18. We see that um, there's this harvest, the, the, this gathering of different branches and different things that you're going to make your sukkah with. And so we have something called a lulav that, um, that many people buy and they wave before the Lord. Um, and it's four different branches that are that kind of show up in the Nehemiah celebration of Sukkot. Um, because this feast happens after an ingathering or the second harvest, this really is a harvest festival. It's a Thanksgiving festival, okay? The purpose of this festival is to give thanks to God for all that you have been, all that's been provided and for the covering that he has given you, right? Um, and so there's a time of giving during this as well. This is a time to be generous. You know, I think we, we often, um, Christians do this at Christmas, but, uh, this is the time of year really biblically when, um, you know, there would be this, this thoughtfulness, this giving. Okay. Um, we discussed that you build a booth that you live in temporarily, um, and, and then they would use what they had harvested as part of the temporary dwelling and that this great harvest, you know, also represents the covering, right? That God is your booth. Um, it also represents that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, um, but that Yeshua is a place for us. He is our rest. In Ezekiel 37, 23 through 28, let's read it. It says this. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will ha all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I give to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. By the way, I'm going to stop here. This reference to David, um, there are scholars that really discuss that this is more about the lineage of David, uh, which we know is Yeshua, okay? That the lineage of David is going to be the prince forever. Let's go to verse 26. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them. By the way, I'm going to stop there too. Covenant, covenant, a wedding, a marriage is a covenant, right? This is an everlasting marriage covenant. Okay, let's keep going. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place, dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. End quote. That word dwelling place in verse 27 is sukkah. It's a sukkah. It's a wedding covering. It's a covering. It's a place of celebration and a wedding feast. It's, a, it's, it's the sukkah. Revelation 21.3 says this, Behold, the tabernacle of Elohim is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. End quote. The tabernacle is a sukkah. The revelation of Messiah is that Sukkot is the final purpose. This is a great forever party, a uniting of God's people with himself. The sukkah is the tabernacle and the dwelling. It's where there's unity between God and man. This temporary dwelling that we build or construct or use at this time of year is such an incredible picture 
of how we're living right now on the earth in this temporary dwelling, right? For the Holy Spirit in our bodies, this temporary testing time where we wander the world, we're in it, but not of it, right? Someday our final dwelling is going to be with God. It's the picture of the beautiful end of all things. The harvest of souls, you know, at the end, right? The harvest of souls will have been reaped. The first fruits, you know, Christ, who, who, who was the first of many that would be harvested. At the very end, all those souls, all the harvest will come in, right? And now we get to have the wedding. In John 14, 23, it says this, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them, our dwelling place, right? Our sukkah is going to be with them. You see, we are going to be together face to face, which is really particularly interesting since only Moses so far really got to see God face to face. He only got to see his glory that way. But someday we all get to be face to face with God. Now, remember those lamps in the Talmud, okay? Revelation tells us that the glory of God and the Lamb of God are the light of the final dwelling place. Remember, we no longer need the sun or moon. God's our light. So that lampstand, the number, the four, the fourth lampstand, the fourth candle, the middle, the central character, the central figure, Yeshua, will be burning the Lamb of God, the high priest. He is the light that will be provided for us. Oh, those garments that were wicks, the four lampstands, the four wicks of the high priest. Man, I mean, can you believe? And Yeshua will light the four corners of the earth. Can you believe the symbolism here? Wow. Your sukkah likely has four corners, right? As I was like looking at our sukkah yesterday, I was thinking about that, that there are these four corners to our sukkah, the, the, these four corners of the earth, the covering over the wholeness of the earth that Yeshua is, the light that he will bring to all of it. It's just amazing. Revelation 22, uh, three to four says this, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, end quote. This is the most exciting to me holiday. This is so much fun. And not only that, but it is all that we have to look forward to. If you need hope today, if you are wondering how you're going to get through the next day, you know, there's this concept in the Bible um, and I've heard it discussed with like, um, you know, spiritual people, you know, or, or people giving advice to you, giving good advice. They say this, they say, remember your future, right? I don't know if you've heard this phrase. People say, remember your future. So stop living from your past. Stop living from the darkness that you were in and start living in a beautiful future that you can look forward to, right? Live like you're in that future right now. Well, this is, they, they just stole this right out of the Bible. Because we have in the fourth command, in the Ten Commandments, it says, remember the Sabbath. I want you to think about this. Remember the Sabbath. And the concept of remembering the Sabbath there actually is the concept to know that the Sabbath is coming and live like it is coming so that you can get all your work done before it comes. Now, hold on just a second. That's the concept behind keeping the Sabbath, right? Remembering the Sabbath. 
What do we have in Matthew 25 in a parable with the 10 virgins? Mm-hmm. Let's think about this, right? You've got five virgins who are prepared. They have oil. They are remembering that the groom is coming. They're ready. They have remembered the Sabbath rest of Yeshua, that the groom is coming. And then you have five of the virgins who did not prepare. They did not remember the beautiful future. It's a weird concept, remember the future, but this is biblical. Okay, so what is that parable, the 10 virgins really telling us? Remember your future. Your future is a dwelling place with the Lord God of all the universe, the most high God, where there will be no more suffering and no more tears and where he will be the light and the light will shine forever and there will be no darkness and you will be whole and you will have a new body and a new dwelling place and nothing will be able to touch that perfection. If you lived like that was your future every day, your Sabbath rest, Yeshua, the Sabbath rest that we are entering into in his reign, in his time, if we remembered our future that way, how would we live today? What would we be thinking about and dreaming about and doing today? I want to live there, right? Right now. And that is something the Bible says, remember the Sabbath. Know it is coming and prepare like it is coming. Be the five virgins with the oil. Prepare your garments. What does it say? What does this verse say? Let me find it here. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. What is the preparation of garments for the wedding feast? If you're going to be the bride, you're preparing your garments, right? You're going to be ready for his coming. And I I don't know if I've gone into this. I'd love to talk about the Galilean wedding with you all and how it's the perfect picture of the end times and all of the prophetic that goes on here. But the groom in a Galilean wedding, the groom surprised the bride and came in the night. And he came when his father told him it was time to go get the bride. So there's this beautiful picture. The father's going to tell Yeshua it's time to go get the bride. It's going to be a surprise for many, right? But for those who had been preparing, those preparing those preparing their garments are those learning to obey the teachings of Yeshua, and learning the deeper meaning behind that obedience. So we're moving past milk. Milk is just straight understanding the laws of God and trying to obey them, but understanding the deeper purpose behind them, the meat. Why? Why does God tell us? Why does God command that we observe His holy days, His Moedim? Why is it commanded for us to observe Sukkot? Well, look at all that it tells you about God and what he's doing. Look at the prophecy buried in it. Look at how he wants you to be the five virgins who are prepared for him to understand what is coming and to remember the Sabbath. Remember what is coming. Guys, I don't, I don't know why this gets me fired up. I love this I, because as I sit and think about my beautiful future, with my Lord and Savior, my whole day now has shifted. Amen? And your whole day can shift. This is 
biblical. Do not let the spiritual gurus out there steal what God has laid out about himself. It is not about some, you know, vague destiny of money and wealth for you. It is so much greater than that. To remember your future means to know for a fact that you have an eternal life that will be perfect, made perfect because of the sacrifice and the work of the groom. That is so much better than a temporary pleasure that you are living in. You are living for something so much greater and so much bigger than that. And it's something that you can hang on to because here's what happens. People think their future is money and power and success. And then they get that money and power and success and they realize that's actually not good enough. That can't save me. Your future, right? If you love the Lord and obey his commands, your future is greater than this. Your future is perfect wholeness and it is eternal and it is forever. It's the best future to hang on to. You want to remember the Sabbath? You want to remember your future? You're going to do it better than any other spiritual guru out there, right? Anybody else who's claiming that they can heal you or that they have the secrets to life. No, they don't. Our Father in heaven has held the secrets to life. Our Father in heaven has taught you his secrets to the kingdom, his understanding of life through his Moedim, through his holy days, through his Sabbath day, through his Yom Kippur, through his his Sukkot, through his Passover, he has taught you all, right? He is the one. He is the healer. You don't go to me. You don't go to somebody else. When they steal from the Bible, it's because those truths are so powerful. They know they can take them and make people believe them. But the problem is they lead people in the wrong direction with them. Let's get this right. Remembering your future is about remembering the Sabbath day, not just the seventh day of the week. Yes, remember that. But remember, this is deeper. It is to remember the Sabbath rest that is coming for you. And so that is why one of, these are just a few of the reasons this holiday is so extraordinary. It's so much bigger than anything mainstream Christianity has taught for a couple thousand years. What the Bible tells you is so much deeper and more meaningful than anything that mankind made up. And guys, we got to get back to this, right? What's kind of fun about this time of year, too, is that I really believe, and many people believe, that Yeshua was born this time of year, that he was conceived in December, January-ish during the Festival of Lights, and that he was born in Sukkot, that the temporary structure that, that was made likely for animals during the Sukkot celebration is where Mary and Joseph had to have Yeshua because there was no room at the inn, right? There's no room at the inn because they, they all traveled back to celebrate Sukkot. They traveled during these celebrations. And, um, you know, it was a smart time for, for the uh, rulers to take a census because everybody went home. And so it makes a lot of sense um, because we know when John the Baptist, and by the way, I go through this in my book, because the Bible tells us when John the Baptist was conceived and was born. We know that Yeshua was born six months after John the Baptist. And so we can align that um, right about the time of Sukkot. And so it is highly likely this is also Yeshua's birth date. Um, even though the Bible does not command you necessarily to celebrate it as Yeshua's birth date, it does not surprise me that that would maybe be the case, um, you know, because God is smarter than we are. He looked into the future. He saw that people would celebrate birthdays at some 
point. By the way, birthday celebrations have not always been the case. The ancient Hebraic people did not celebrate birthdays. It was not part of their um, their traditions, but God knew it would be part of ours. And so it makes total sense to me that God, who is smarter than we are and sees all of time, would align that tabernacling with us, right? Yeshua, Elohim, um, Emmanuel, God with us, that he would come during the feast of tabernacles. He would come during the God with us feast. He would come during the wedding festival, um, that we would have his presence and his light come, uh, for the four candles that would be lit for the whole earth. Doesn't that make sense to you? Well, the Bible kind of describes that that might, might actually be what has taken place. And, um, most scholars actually agree with me. Even Christian scholars agree that, you know, Yeshua was not born December 25th. A lot of other pagan gods were said to be born on December 25th. And the Roman Catholic church decided to steal that holiday and try to make it Jesus's. But Jesus has his own holidays, you guys, and he's told you what they are. They're in Leviticus 23. Do not let any man deceive you, little child. The one who does the righteousness of God is righteous, right? Peter tells us this. We're told this. Do not be deceived. The one who obeys the laws of God is righteous. Please go learn what God has commanded because in every command, I promise you, there is this much depth and this much inspiration and this much that Satan has stolen and gone and twisted and given to others in the world to use for their own power and their own profit and destroyed the understanding that Christians have of these things, the, the believers of God have of these things. Let's return. Let's teshuva. Let's repent and go back to our father's house so that we can dwell with him in his sukkah. All right. I hope you've enjoyed this. I have loved sharing this with you. This has been one of my favorite um podcast to research for this entire year. And I am so excited to see what God does in this next year. Let me encourage you in the next few days, go outside, thank God, give him thanks, do some giving, go, go do, even if it's small giving, pay for the guy's Starbucks behind you. I don't know what God's going to call you to do, but give where you can love where you can give thanks to the Lord, give an extra gift to him right now, and then go study this for yourself. Please test what I have taught you today. Go find these things for yourself. Go look at all the scriptures that talk about God dwelling with man and the dwelling place will be with mankind. Go look at how much the word sukkah comes up in scripture. You're going to see Sukkot even in the story of Jacob, where he built temporary dwelling places for his animals, much like we see Yeshua was born in. You're going to find this all through scripture, but I want you to go do that research. If, you've, if you're incredulous at this podcast, go look for yourself. I want you to discover these things. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Um, but in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you for listening and uh, many blessings. Till next time.